papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. It's the Media Project, which is a half hour of commentary and analysis where we try to give you some insight into what's going on with some veteran journalists, and we thank you for joining us. I'm Rex Smith of the Upstate American, formerly editor of the Times Union, and let me introduce my colleagues here. There is Judy Patrick, the former editor of the Daily Gazette, now vice president of the New York Press Association. You doing okay here? I'm good, I'm good. Good, good. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll uh, Barbara see. Lombardo, formerly executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record of Troy, and she's now a professor of journalism. Hello there. Happy to be here. And the news director of Northeast Public Radio, WAMC, Ian Pickus, is here. The young fellow here. Happy New Year, resolving to keep this place on the air for another year. <laughs> <laughs> Good work, Ian. It's not only on your shoulders, thank goodness. But <laughs> that it's, is true. Uh, it's, a, it's a great thing. We'd be in trouble if it were. Well, one of the stories of the year, really, is we look back at 2023 is the rise of not-for-profit media. I mean, there are a lot of great not-for-profit sites coming along across the country. But the fact of the matter is public radio has managed to do this for decades now with great success, actually. And there were some bright spots this year. I think some partnerships that have sprung up, some investments by the CPB in statehouse news coverage, which is of interest to us here speaking in Albany. But a lot of state capitals have no reporters and certainly none from public outlets watching them, entire state governments operating without reporters. So any chance there is to bolster our ranks in that area, I think, is really important. There are also some down spots this year, too like NPR slashing 20% of its staff. So the war goes on, live to fight another day. But one of the stories we read this week was about the record number of newsroom layoffs in 2023 and newspapers closing at the rate of two and a half a week in the U.S. So it's hard to paint a very bright picture, I think, going into the new year. Sorry. <laughs> Judy's a little dubious of that number. I am you? dubious of that number. I'd like a report and give me a title. Tell me the two newspapers that are closing every week. I think that the same power of local newspapers is stronger than we are led to believe or what the common narrative is. In New York State, for example, I think the staying power is pretty strong. There's no doubt that the number of reporters out on the beat is down dramatically from 20 years ago. I mean, here in Albany, where we record the media project, the State House used to have a legislative correspondence association. It still does, but there are far fewer people up in that gallery than there were 10 years ago. It's just that as the local newspapers have retrenched, one of the first things that they pull out of is the state capitol. That gives you less coverage of what's happening in Albany and less in-depth coverage of how state policies affect what's happening at the local level. Mm -hmm. It goes beyond that, too, because there's also less in the arts. So there are fewer people, if any, that are reviewing and in a way promoting plays, theater, music, and that makes a difference too. And that was something that back in the day we were used to having uh, up in Saratoga, we would be promoting uh, 
say promoting because it's publicity, <laughs> Ineffective but it's it reviewing. It's uh -huh. not always positive, but mm -hmm. reviewing the ballot. And it's also news and it's also business, those things. So there's less of a widespread, there's, there's less about sports. It affects the fabric of the community when there's less coverage of the life of the community, the cultural stuff, the social sphere. It's not just that. On state news, you know, there's some good news. I'm on the board of this wonderful not-for-profit called New York Focus, which is growing, which just got a huge grant to expand their, their newsroom. They now have eight reporters, and they'll soon have more. And they're, they're doing big, ambitious journalism on New York state level that would have been done by reporters in the Legislative Correspondents Association some years ago. And they're doing the kind of reporting that used to be done by the Legislative Correspondents Association and this is replicated, as Judy was noting, around the country. We just had on the show a few weeks ago Anna Wolf, who is from Mississippi Today, one of the great outlets uh, like that. And this is happening all over the country. That's the good news. And it is to replace those jobs, the, say, 20,000 media job cuts in 2023, which is the most since the pandemic. There were 30,000 cuts in 2020. So the media is still losing overall the news media, but there is some growth in some of these pockets. Whether there will always be enough dollars in the pipeline for not-for-profits. I mean, the way public radio makes it happen is you keep going. It's the individual donations, right, that make all the difference? All the difference. I mean, this place wouldn't operate without them, despite the small amount of money that comes in from the federal government. And then, you know, you're talking about underwriting being a portion of a budget. But yeah, three times a year at WAMC, we're putting our, our hats in our hands. And when that, if, knock on wood, it doesn't happen. But when it does, you will see the same sort of cuts here. It's not a, an academic discussion. It's a three months to live kind of budgeting. Yikes. <laughs> you know, 20 years ago, uh, there were innovations in newsroom technology that kind of made some of the reductions in workforce make sense. We didn't need four librarians to cut the paper part every day and file the clips and little envelopes anymore because we had digital archives. There were fax machines that made it easier for us to go out and get obits and type them in. And now we don't even type in obits or write obits. I mean, there are certain changes in the industry that led to some of the reduction in workforce, but I had, I had, I couldn't, I can't conceive of how close to the bone our staffs have been cut at paper after paper after paper. There are some that have always been two or three person operations and are still continuing to do what they do at a local level with two or three people, but the regional papers that have been cut, it's very sad to see some of these positions go. We're losing health beats. We're losing education beats, transportation beats. I mean, we used to have a person assigned to cover transportation, to cover health, maybe even more than one person to cover health. I had a beat that we called How We Live Now. <laughs> <laughs> That's something, yeah. What does that mean yeah. even? You know? <laughs> but I had an abundance of reporters, it seemed, and this guy was going to write about the culture, you know, the way we, we live. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but you know, who would possibly think of having such luxury at this point? That sounds like a luxury that we never had at the same time. <laughs> There is the Taylor Swift beat that some people have. Well, That's right. Times person of the year. Isn't that something? Well, but there is some sense to that, right? Taylor Swift being a cultural phenomenon, not just a great performer. So maybe we have to write about that kind of thing. I think that's strictly Gannett's response to if there's reader interest in this, we're going to have plenty of coverage so that when people are Googling Taylor Swift, a Gannett story will come up for them. 
Mm, speaking as a former Gannett editor, you know of whereof you speak. Oh, I've had multiple owners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but do you think Taylor Swift was overcovered? I do in, in some respects. I think uh, making her Times Person of the Year was an overreach. I think she got a lot of coverage, which built upon itself. I agree that she drove a lot of ticket sales. She made a lot of money. The relationship or the romance with the football player accentuated the whole Taylor Swift machine but you know, she's no Paul McCartney. And now that, the football, <laughs> now that the football player is not doing as well, my uh. husband said he heard somebody on the radio say, She's his Yoko. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, man. That is a generational problem there, isn't it? We are going off the rails here. You know, one more thing about the nonprofit newsrooms before we leave this discussion. There was a time, I think, where the brand of the news outlets carried a lot of weight. So if the Times Union reported X, or the Gazette reported why, that meant something. And in one of the stories we read this week, it makes the point that with this diffuse offering of nonprofits doing important work, but perhaps on a shoestring, perhaps building their brand up, folks don't naturally come to a story the way they did when they just picked up the paper every morning and saw what was on the top of the fold. And that, I think, has contributed a bit to some of the questioning we're seeing about facts in our country. Does the average person know what ProPublica is? Probably not in the same way that they did, you know, the Daily Sunflower that they got uh, in their mailbox. Yeah. And when so many of the brands that are big that have strength behind them are not credible, Fox News is what I'm talking about. You know, it's a big brand that is financially underwritten by advertisers. Absolutely incredible. Uncredible, non-credible, how do you say that? Yet it has resilience. Uh, it has a big footprint. Uh, and and it questions, it, and it doesn't have the dedication to fact, that uh, uh, to truth, that has been typical of journalism for the last five decades in America. Because it's not journalism. It's Yeah, it's propaganda. It's the yes. Republican House organ and a specific kind of. But, you know, even as the brands don't have that identity that Ian's talking about, the bright spot here, again, on the, on the not-for-profit notion, is this um, what's called Press Forward, which is an initiative that's going to put $500 million into local newsrooms over the next five years with money coming from foundations and community support. This is really great news, right? Right. They announced their first round of grants in December, and um, it looked like they were going to be spending some money. One of the things I liked was the idea that they there's an organization that will provide free legal advice to struggling newspapers. And it's one of the issues that local newspapers face is when they want to challenge a denial of a freedom of information request or anything. They just can't afford, afford the lawyers, and I, so I think throwing money at that is a, is a, a good move. It also, reading about that project, I found it very impressive that they had carefully, it seemed like they had carefully chosen the types of coverage that they were going to support. And in underserved areas and not just the communities in general, although there was some of that, but specific projects that would be substantive help for those communities. Mm -hmm. In Appalachia, for instance. One of the criticisms of some of some of these big projects, however, is the fact that they're, they're not sustaining grants. They're, you know, they're grants that will give you money so you can win an award or to do one serious project and they're not offering help to do the meat and potatoes coverage that is often so important, especially at the local level. So I'd like to see more of that 
coming from this big effort that it's not just you know the glorious story that's going to get you recognition it's the day-to-day operations that also need help you have a point that that when push comes to shove when the grant funding runs out uh then how do these organizations self-sustain that is something that philanthropists will make a point of saying well i like to the philanthropists have often said to me when I've talked to them about it, well, I like to put money where I can help things get launched and then they have to find their own way. And, you know, the good news is, for example, um, the Adirondack Explorer, another not-for-profit that, full disclosure here, I'm on the board of that also, but they have existed... How many boards are you on? Five. (laughs) (laughs) That's bad news. They have existed for 25 years. They celebrated their 25th anniversary, and it's a great organization uh, covering the Adirondacks in a way that nobody else does. But it is a not-for-profit that gets some foundation funding, but also what WAMC would consider underwriting support. They have basically advertisers who also come aboard. And that has sustained that organization, and they're growing, and they're doing serious reporting now, not just which trails to take in the Adirondacks. (laughs) So that is the question. How can these not-for-profits, will they all exist 25 years from now, those that are getting this funding? Or three years after they've expired the funding. It's a real problem, but at least... It keeps them alive in the short run. They can accomplish things that people can look at and measure and say, oh, this is worth having. Yeah. It can't hurt. Right. The jargon that is being used nowadays is, well, we just need a little runway. Runway. One of those terms you love to note. <laughs> and these, these always run into a similar problem, which is will people, individual consumers, pay for it to continue? Uh-huh. That's where a lot of the ones that WAMC has been involved in meet the end of the road. I was thinking about that this morning. There's an aggregate site uh, that has, it's called the Saratoga Report, and I think I've heard you laud it in the past, possibly, Rex, but I've got questions and concerns about it. It will list stories that are in the area that might be of interest to people in the Saratoga and Capital District region, but they're not creating their own stories. When you click, I click on one story and it takes me to the Times Union. I click on another story. It's an aggregator. It takes me to the Leader Herald. Uh-huh. You know, it might take me to the Saratogian. You know, so there's, it might take me to the Naira website with their press releases. Oh. So it's so, somebody is going to the trouble to aggregate all of this, but the real entities that are creating the content, which is a big problem on a national level, is a big problem on the local level. I don't understand how this helps the Leader Herald or the Times Union or any of the, uh, any of the small papers get income. Well, the AI creators would tell you that it's uh, because it drives... No, I shouldn't say it that way. The, the aggregators would tell you that it drives eyeballs to your website and you can monetize that uh, with advertising. But artificial intelligence is making use of the same, uh, the same phenomenon without paying anything, right? They have just uh, ingested all of this content from journalism, and they're, they're not paying anything for it. There is a great detail in the story about the Times lawsuit on this, which came out this week, which was, hey, chatbot, I've run into a paywall right. on the New York Times. What's the rest of this story about? So to prove your point. And the chatbot produces the rest of the story, exactly. gets around the machine paywall. learning. Yeah. Boy, that's... Uh... that's a, it's a really interesting lawsuit and, an, and a necessary one, I think. I'll be following closely 
everyone should be following closely because if you're not paying for the content providers to provide the news, besides all the other accuracy and nuance problems that AI has, this is but this it, is bad. Don't you think that the Times this, has I good think, chance I, of success with this, right? I, I think they make a good argument, a really good argument. Mm -hmm. Right. As anyone who's ever tried to establish copyright, uh, it's clear uh, to me a copyright violation that they are just vacuuming them up all the content and it's not like they're scrambling the words That's or a great they're putting, verb. Yeah, they're they're not scrambling anything or or adding any kind of nuance in the New York Times lawsuit they have attached 100 examples of of verbatim copying of long articles it's not just a paragraph or two it's not fair use under any definition this would not be considered fair use and it's not like when you go to chat GPT <laughs> you're, and you ask for this information, you're get, getting a whole different take on it. You are just getting access to New York Times archives, in, in my opinion. So if the Times wins this lawsuit, doesn't that really scramble the way information is diffused generally? Because it wouldn't stop with the Times. There would have to be some compensation for every content creator. And then, and content creators would include people who write press releases that are absorbed by AI, and and it would be images. I mean, it just seems that this is this has huge implications for the marketplace of information that we can't even imagine. I right. think right. How to point. legislate it and how to enforce it. I boy, this is going to be some big story yeah. years to come, right? Yeah. Those <laughs> who support well, AI in the development and, and who are against this lawsuit will argue that. They need this kind of latitude in order to develop the systems to be as effective as it can. And in fact, AI has been fairly good at, at helping people diagnose illness, for example. There are certain uses where it's, it's, it's excellent. But again, vacuuming whole books, whole songs, and regurgitating them. And again, people who love AI say, oh, they're doing something magic with it. But uh, any AI-generated content I've ever seen is stilted. It's, I can tell that it's so AI. Far, you know, right? I've, I've heard you talk about that, Judy, and I would challenge you All on right. that. There's, I, sh I shared one with my class. There was a Times, New York Times quiz, and they had maybe 10 different examples of can you tell whether this was AI or a human wrote it. And... I feel like the same way you're saying, I think that I did better than some of my students because of a, an innate sense of how, how things were structured. But we were, overall, we were fooled. It's easy to get fooled by most of it, and it did not read in a stilted way. It did not read in an unbelievable way. It did not read machine read. Probably because in those instances, they were taking verbatim from the New York Times. <laughs> there you go. Touché. I rest Touché. my case, right? Uh, but you know, AI is, if AI is so smart, it ought to be able to then figure out an allocation of resources to the uh, content creators, right? <laughs> that would be part of the way. That's an interesting notion. By the way, folks, if you have thoughts about this, we welcome you to share them. Media at WAMC.org is how you can interact with us. I'm Rex Smith here with Ian Pickus and Judy Patrick and Barbara Lombardo, and we are your projectors of the media project this week. Right. Do you disagree that Taylor Swift, with me, that Taylor Swift should not have been Times person of the year. I was okay with it. <laughs> Who else would it be? Who would be the, uh, you know, I mean, you could say that it's, well, here's here's another great distinction. PolitiFact has named lie of the year, and they have awarded that to Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign of conspiracy theories. How does that stack up? 
I think he was a pretty strong contender. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it wasn't one lie. That was the right. whole point. <laughs> yeah, he's just full of it. You it, know, for, <laughs> it was for the whole body of work, apparently. It can't be just one lie. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, it's it's just amazing. It's not only that, uh, you know, that vaccines cause autism. Not true. Uh, that uh, no childhood vaccines have ever been tested. Not true. Circumstantial evidence. Oh, my goodness. You just begin to go on and on. And it's no wonder that his siblings and cousins have all denounced his campaign. And yet the power that he brings to possibly affect the outcome of the presidential election is frightening. Stunning. And you can make a connection to something we were just talking about. He's got the Kennedy brand. Yeah. And that's what makes the misstatements, lies, obfuscation so much more pernicious. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm just concerned that Donald Trump is going to look at this, that he lost the lie of the year, (laughs) and he's going to try to up his game and hit us with even more outrageous things in the year to come. Yeah, let's see if he can bring back Rope-A-Dope to get himself the crown again, something like that. Uh, It's an amazing thing. We ought to pay a word of tribute also locally, since we are originating this program in uh, upstate New York, to an article that appeared in... Pointer, which is a journalism think tank written by a local writer, Jane Gottlieb, a former Times Union reporter, who wrote a piece about a wonderful local reporter named Larry Rulison, who has been the guy. He's a business writer for the Times Union. He has been on the story of the uh, horrific limo crash in Schoharie uh, that occurred in 2018. And he has been covering this story Uh, in which uh, 20 people died. Uh, And I think it's just great that it is a story that points out how staying with a story that you begin to report can make all the difference in the world. Uh, And I think that's true of what Larry Rulison did with his story. Yeah, this is one of the examples of what is really a national story because of the horrific nature of the accident and how things like this happen can happen can and do happen in other places but not to the extent that not the number of deaths that were in this case so it's a national story that is a a local story because it happened in our region and Larry Rulison has done an exceptional an exceptional job he is a digger so he's going through records and coming from the business background so he wasn't sent out to do a feature of how do you, you know how do horrible do the families feel to have lost all of their children and nieces and nephews and people who, who did absolutely nothing wrong people who were standing in a parking lot so he took in his nature the digging into dozens and dozens of years of records federal records local records state records um, which took a lot of time to commitment from the times union and uh, he wasn't the only person covering this, but his stick to and mm-hmm. his determination to stay at it and his editors giving him the okay to do that really made a difference in uh, there's still some outcome out, there's still some pending outcomes yeah. for this case, but it took a lot of different turns to the to the benefit of the survivors that wouldn't have happened without him. Yep, and, and a tribute to local media sticking with it. That's so, great. So, I, yeah, I guess I sound like president of his fan club. I had never met him until I invited him to speak to my journalism class, and I was just so interested in his coverage of the story and what it took to make this story come out. 
Um, he came to my class a couple of years ago, I want to say. Maybe it was before COVID. Or, you know, I but, think people don't understand yeah. sometimes how a reporter's energy is fundamental to that kind of reporting. Uh, because uh, if you look, if you were to search for Larry Rulison's byline, you would see a lot of stories on a wide range of topics, not all of them big deals. It's part of his job to just cover this, this, and this, especially in diminished newsrooms. But, you know, we used to say that a, a great reporter would always have this for tomorrow's paper, this for Sunday, and then in the back pocket something for maybe two months down the road. Uh, and he's a master of that, of the, keeping it going. Yes, the writer of this story described him as non-confrontational yet single-minded. Mm -hmm. And I have to say I was so impressed and maybe surprised at how humble he was, how soft-spoken. And it was a great example, I thought, to my students, too, to see how you don't have to be a, you know, a jerk and an assertive, aggressive, you have to be assertive, but you don't have to be an aggressive jerk to, to get a story. You can be humble. And, and he definitely was. I was glad to see him uh, yeah. acknowledged. It's a good thing. We also want to take uh, just a moment to talk about a very interesting phenomenon in Politico, uh, report, reported by Politico, about abortion coverage changing in the media from initially after the uh, Roe versus Wade was struck down, uh, the common uh, term in stories about abortion was pregnancy. Now the word that's most common in stories about abortion is vote. And so across the country, uh, articles concerning the issue of abortion are now 2.5 times more often to be focused on politics as opposed to maternal health. That's a phenomenon of journalistic malpractice, is it? Or is that just the way it is? Right, because the issues of health are important for the women involved, but it's also those issues are important for a better public understanding of what's involved in, in abortion access. Part of the reason this happens is that there are far more political reporters than there are health reporters out there, especially as newsrooms have Good closed down. Um, there, you know, you throw a stone in a newsroom and you'll hit a re uh, political reporter. Also, they're used to covering such things and they can churn out the content um, almost on a daily basis. But it's to the detriment of the issue and because people, there's a great misunderstanding of what's involved and what's involved with all these different laws that are going from state to state and um, we need to balance this more. Well, we'll come back to some of these topics next week when we can look back at 2023 instead of just saying forward. Thank you all for joining us on The Media Project. Ian Pickus, Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, David Gustina, and to you all for being with us. We hope you'll come back again next week for The Media Project. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movie's notwithstanding. They all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany, and WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening.
funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>